You're listening to Green Mountain Medicine, an original podcast series by ACP Vermont for all things internal medicine. I'm Sam. And I'm Anish. And we're your hosts. This series aims to unpack the complexity of medicine in a nuanced and evidence-based way. We invite you to relax, grab some coffee, and engage with us as we deconstruct the topics that impact our field and characterize our practice. We are here today with Dr. Jim Lee, an assistant professor of medicine and hospitalist at the UVM Medical Center. We welcome him to the Green Mountain Medicine podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. So tell us about yourself and where you went to medical school and where did you complete your training and where you grew up? Sounds good. So I grew up mostly in the tri-state area, um, sort of Philadelphia, suburbs of Pennsylvania, New Jersey. Um, I did my medical school in Albany Medical College, and then I did my residency here. And, uh, you know, currently I am one of the hospitalists and also a member of the Epic clinical team. What part of Pennsylvania are you from? I'm from York, Pennsylvania. So I guess I was born in Beijing, but we kind of moved to Philly as my first um, place. And then kind of all the suburbs of Philly, like Abington, Audubon, all those kind of like right outside of Philly suburbs. But uh, I would say I'm mostly from New Jersey because I did move pretty much once every year up until pretty much uh, middle school. Wow. Sam and I are both applying into, into medicine. And I was wondering kind of when you did medicine, how did you decide there's so many specialties to choose from and so many things to do like after an IM residency, how you ended up as a hospitalist with the other million paths you could have taken? You know, I think that was really, I think the decision at the time was very practical for me. And I, you know, I was really looking at a different life path at the time. And I'm really glad how things played out. But, you know, for me, I was really considering a specialty with a lot of options. I was, you know, potentially, I had a lot of sort of extracurricular things, um, including possibly doing a tech company. Um, I was also an active day trader and potentially was going to go back to active day trading. Um, I felt like medicine gave me a lot of opportunity because it was really broad. If I did choose to sort of go down I saw that these were options for me that I didn't want to close off. You know, if I did want to become a proceduralist, there were options sort of down that pathway. If I didn't want to become a proceduralist, I could do something very general, both inpatient and outpatient. So it felt like one of the best ones where it was broad. It gave me a lot of things I loved about it, but also just a lot of options in case um, I did want to change my mind, depending on where my career would go. That's great. So it sounds like you've been interested in tech for a long time. How did you, how did this interest come about? You know, I really grew up loving technology. You know, we didn't have a lot of money, but somehow did have a computer and I did spend a lot of years on the computer. I actually did want to go into computer science, but it, you know, I was actually really, really discouraged from it um, at the time. So I think it always kind of had this sort of underlying theme of interest for me. I think especially kind of grew when I was in medical school and I saw how bad sort of healthcare systems were. And it, you know, I, we at Albany Med, we did have a paper charting system with sort of a computer system only for orders and lab review. And it just was so clunky. It just, you know, one of my huge gripes is just kind of efficiency. And there was just so many areas where um, it's just like, wow, this is, it just has to be better than this. And um I did see a lot of opportunity there to kind of merge my two interests. And, uh, you know, I actually applied to this residency program because at the time on their website for the program, they did sort of advertise there was an informatics elective actually. So that, that was actually pretty cool for me. And what was that informatics elective like? 
So it was a little bit different than I expected. I think right before I came here, there was a more, a potential, I don't know all the details of it, but from what I heard, there certainly was a push for sort of a greater inclusion of a more academic informatics program. I think, um, I forgot their names, but there were two professors, um, PhDs who, I think they ended up going to Brown, but initially they were hired here to really develop a program here. So they, along with kind of the the beginnings of this um, Epic clinical team, they did have a class that they sort of joint recorded with the program here, um, as well as I forgot another institution. And it was really heavily lecture-based for a week, um, but it was great in the sense that um, it provided a great introduction to the field, but also gave a lot of chances of, of networking. And that's really how I kind of got into the work as a resident here. Um, leading to kind of continuing the work as an attending, really a lot of the connections I made through that elective. Hmm. Do you, are there still residents and medical students who work, who you work with in this role? I know more and more people, I feel like every year that are interested also in this sort of thing, and especially with Epic. So that's kind of funny because I was probably one of the first here that got involved kind of through the elective. Um, that class, we also had a cardiology fellow and a sleep fellow who kind of showed up for like one session and then left. And then, you know, I was asked, um, you know, I, I asked how I could get involved more. And I was told to go to the meetings every, you know, the biweekly meetings. And that's where I met um, the various other builders, you know, like Rachel McEntee, Ray Keller. And I think throughout the years, uh, people have referred, you know, certain residents who are interested to me and Rachel. And, you know, some stick around more than others. They kind of get a taste and maybe it's not for them. I think currently we have one that's very interested. And um, it's kind of funny that it's kind of come full circle because I've actually been asked to restart the elective. Um, and we might have our inaugural class in September. And we're, I think, initially still kind of a work in progress, but we're hoping to get it available for all the residents and potentially even med students down the line. But it's very, very beginnings. And, uh, it's, you know, it's the first elective thing that I would have designed. So it's, you know, again, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of um, sort of learn as you go for this. That's great, though. We can spread the word. I feel like there's a lot of people um, interested in this. And it's certain residents I hear are really good. And they're like super users. And it will be interesting to have like an actual formalized class and a way that people can get more involved. And I feel yeah. like we have a little doctoring skills class we take in our first and second year of med school before you enter like the clinical world. And they show you like the core basics of Epic, but it's all set from an outpatient viewpoint. And it's also not how I've ever actually seen any attending or yeah. resident use Epic. And so you kind of are a little bit exposed to it, but it's really just like a learn on the day thing as you start your clerkship. Yeah, I mean, I, I've definitely heard from multiple areas that uh, that's been a big sort of almost demand for a little bit of better EPIC training. Mm -hmm. um, obviously on service, learning as you go, different residents, it feels like people would like to be a little bit more prepared um, also to use it more efficiently. I've been teaching an intro to EPIC class, I guess, for the medicine clerkship for the last maybe three cycles. But I think maybe down the line, a more formalized curriculum would be, it sounds like it, be something um, at least students would like at this point. But again, I, I think we're really just kind of starting this right now. It seems like there was not a great need being met. And uh, it's kind of funny. That's also the case with attendings and residents. Um, you're, you're very much trained by trainers who actually have no clinical experience at all. So 
uh, you do maybe hours of lessons that are completely not relevant often. <laughs> That's such a good point. I learned Epic through my last job before medical school. So it was, I was, I felt fortunate to already know how to navigate it. But looking back at that time, I was definitely taught by a bunch of people who had never seen a patient before. <laughs> and it's not always very clinically relevant and then makes it harder and more confusing when you're trying to learn on the back end. So that's a really good point. I also heard a fun fact. I don't know if this is true or if you've heard this too, that apparently like the first EMR was invented at UVM. I think and... that is actually true. His name, he's actually very famous, Larry something. I, I do recall. the soap note, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he, he did do the soap note. And then um, I think he developed one of the first EMRs here um, based on that concept. That's really interesting. Wait, that's a great fun fact. His name was Larry Weed, I think. I know you spent some time like on the ground helping other hospitals in UVM network rollout Epic. What have your experiences been like doing that? What have you seen and what have you learned? You know, I think it's been pretty crazy. You know, I, you know, I'm more on the ground support. So, you know, I don't really know kind of the leadership grand plan of deployment of sort of, I'm sure there's a lot of struggles um, on that end, but um, I found that it to be a very enlightening experience. Um, I did do upgrades here, but um, I did help with kind of the upgrade transition at CVMC and Alice Hyde up in Malone, New York. And uh, they were very interesting because I did my residency here. And um, oftentimes, especially when I was in Albany Med, we did get Alice High transfers. So, you know, when you're at an academic center, you know, you know, you have the whole, you know, outside hospital and, uh, you know, we, you, we, you kind of get a, you hear things about these hospitals. You often just get a whole packet of just, you know, a book of papers. You hear residents talk about these places, but, um, you know, you, and you kind of assume, you kind of assume the worst, you know, you don't really know you're, you know, you're given the impression that they have less resources, but you don't know who works there. You don't know what they're actually dealing with. And for me, I thought it was really, really, really interesting just kind of being on the ground support there. You know, the resources are certainly, um, very light. And it's just that it's just a different, different environment. Um, it was really cool to just kind of get to know people there, um, to see their struggles, you know, simply, you know, you feel like this patient needs pressors or to be intubated, but only the ED, there's like one ED doc downstairs and, um, he may, he or she may not agree with your clinical decision. Then you're kind of stuck on the floor with really no support. If you need a surgical consult, someone's at home for the weekend. So, if you think it's urgent, you can call them up. And if they don't think it's urgent, you're really kind of stuck in a very bad clinical scenario. And, you know, their EHRs were very sort of archaic as well. And then also a lot of those places at the time had a lot of transition workforce. You know, sometimes it was hard to retain people. Mm. So certainly it helped me appreciate kind of the challenges that um, these places face. And alternatively, I also kind of heard their views of sort of a large academic center. You know, a, a lot of the promises of sort of creating a network was for easier transfer and support. But given UVM has been quite full as well, um, you know, they've also been, you know, we, we were kind of promised more support and now we want to transfer and it's still an issue. So I think that dynamic was just very, a lot more enlightening for me mm -hmm. um, in the sense of just what these places have to work with. But also it was really just, it was cool meeting doctors of other backgrounds. You know, um, I think at every place I went to, um, I learned something new, got to make some connections there. And uh, I think now that when I work my hospital's job and I get a transfer, I can really sort of relate more. I actually know the person who actually sent the, the person over for one. And then two, um, I can really appreciate what they've been, they were trying to do there more. Mm -hmm.
Dr. Lee, that's a really, that's really beautiful. EMR is a bridge to understanding. I wasn't, <laughs> expecting, I wasn't expecting you to say that, but I, uh, that's really lovely. And the connections you can make when you're supporting people in a completely different role from just the accepting hospitalist. Do you face a lot of kind of resistance to adopting Epic or EMR when you go out to these other hospitals that are kind of in the process of it? I, 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 I do. I mean, I do see resistance and I think that's one of the struggles of why the e, the EMR is the way it is. I think, you know, we're trying to solve problems and sort of in terms of just sort of how to augment our ability to do medical care. But the problem I think is oftentimes we don't have a unified a view of what's best and what's best may be different for everyone, you know, involved. And I think even internally, that's always kind of the issue with this implementation as well. You know, maybe this way of doing things would be better for this bigger group or this smaller group, but it's hard to get sort of a consensus. And um, even what the EHR can do for people, I think people have different viewpoints on. You know, some people view this as a huge hindrance. They don't see the full potential. Obviously, if it's not implemented well, you don't see the full potential or if, and if, uh, you know, or if it's just implemented poorly. So I think oftentimes at these places, you know, when you sort of implement something new, especially if the doctors are a little bit older, it, they see this as a hindrance of doing more work. And, you know, oftentimes, you know, I found that this, the deployment is very difficult. You know, I really, you know, I think Ray Keller, Rachel McEntee, Doug Gentile, all these folks really started building this epic clinical team. Because prior to the clinical team, you know, when I was at these places um, at Malone, they have sort of contracted Epic helpers who are sort of sent on site to sort of help with the transition. But I realized like they were all contracted as a sort of a, you know, a third party external company that's done multiple deployments of various EHRs. None of the folks were clinical. So, you know, obviously that transition becomes very difficult when, a hospitalist or a nurse or a surge, you know, anyone's just like, oh, how do I do this? And then you get this most generic answer of someone who's actually never done that work before. Um, so I think, you know, with this recent building of this epic clinical team, you know, sending actual folks who do the work, um, I definitely found that the people were more appreciative um, of that type of, that sort of added clinical IT support. What do you think about the the costs of EMR? I've heard they can be you know, insanely expensive and can be really hard for like smaller private practices to implement. Do you think that's something that's been improving over time? Or do you think that's something that everyone just kind of has to accept as a part of healthcare? I think the companies have been very smart. I think if my personal opinion, honestly, is EHRs are really f- far behind what's possible because then I think part of it is really the barrier of entry. There's so much beyond the tech that goes into this you know, in terms of regulations and, you know, for multi-year deals that oftentimes, you know, they're, the, the companies that make them are very smart. You know, they basically, once you commit, you're committed, you know, you're like hundreds of millions of dollars deep and um, you're basically, you're in the system. And the, the problem is it's hard to even be a competitor here because it's the cost of entry is so high that again, it, I, I think it's, it's just the, I think it's going to be tough because I, I think that's kind of the issue with most medical products is really the barrier of entry. So it kind of does not create, there's not a huge need for innovation to be successful. It's really just being, you know, and being the best leaves a huge gap still because you don't have to be the best. Mm-hmm. So I think to answer your question, I, I think it's tough because it's hard for people to come in and improve and what's here, they're not super incentivized to be 
better, especially if they're the best. Mm-hmm. If you could wave a magical wand and create any EMR you wanted, what would you change or add to our current EMR that we have? I think the biggest problem with the current set of um, tools is, is really sometimes usability. You know, I think I think Epic is, is especially um, problematic in the sense that, you know, people have Epic systems everywhere, but oftentimes the data is owned by the institution. So the data trees are purely novel. So mm-hmm. you basically just have a shell of a system that, um, you know, then the institution that buys into has to rebuild out. Mm-hmm. You don't have any consistency. It's built in a very old language. Performance is quite poor, in my opinion. So, you know, once you're trying to open two charts, you're waiting like 10 seconds. I don't think we, I think we are moving in a realm of, you know, a lot of clinical decision support in AI in the future. Um, I personally don't think we're leveraging that enough, you know, right now. Um, But I do think, you know, with a better EHR, you know, you can almost automatically generate studies, you know, you know, you don't have to, you know, it's just, but I I think there's still a long ways to go. But, you know, honestly, my biggest gripe right now would be sort of usability. And I kind of going back to my previous point, I think that's tough, because there's so many different visions. And there's multiple right answers. But um, without a clear vision, oftentimes, you get this kind of mess that we see. With what you're describing, which is like Epic, for example, looks different for every institution that buys it. It's like a shell and then the institution has to build it out. How long does it take for something to change? Like if if a lot of people got together at UVM and wanted a certain feature, how long until that could be put into action? I think it's really the organizational structure. You know, I think the actual build oftentimes is quite easy, but approval, getting consensus of the departments, and I think difficulty of change kind of runs deeper. I think a lot of what I've been seeing personally is what governs this practice, who wants to own it, you know, who's going to review it. You know, we oftentimes get one-off requests from one user with sort of no sort of discussion from who it will affect. And I often find that it's not any technical delay here. You know, the, the technical thing could take like one hour or 30 minutes, but the administrative delay could be months getting a committee to agree on something, um, you know, especially if it's becoming network wide. So I do know that some institutions are better than others. Um, you know, they, they have a very clear hierarchical system of approval and, you know, may that may take long, but at least you'll sort of get a more predictable timeline. And at some places it's just a mess. So I really think that's not a technical challenge, but more of an organizational challenge. And I've read articles about companies like, you know, Apple Health has talked about it, where like you can kind of download your own medical records into your account versus being within the EMR. Now you could, in theory, like move between hospitals easier. Do you think that's something we'll get to in the future as well? Or think I all think very hospital dependent, hospital owned. I, re- I remember about 10 years ago, that was a huge push by sort of the, re- sort of the retail tech, um, you know, Microsoft Health Vault, Google Health, Apple Health, like all these companies. A lot have sort of canceled their projects in this area, and it could be one of those things where it just was not the right timing. You know, mm-hmm. I think through the informatics end, there is a big push, at least to sort of standardize a separate format that would allow that. Uh, but but given that your health is so tied to the networks, I would basically say the regu- the average patient is so not in tune with their health. I think it's hard to make a profitable product yet, and therefore implementation's been a little bit weak. A big part of healthcare is kind of older individuals, especially. Um, that may change when 
you know, the population who needs the most healthcare um, kind of, but kind of grew up with tech. That I, I think as, as this generation, our generation kind of ages there, I do see that there will be huge growth in that field potentially um, for opportunities, but maybe now um, it could just be the wrong timing. Um, it could be available, but I just don't see a lot of people using it as much. And therefore I think those companies are failing a little bit because of that. Hmm. That makes sense. I feel like there is this kind of fear with all of your information being somewhere online. So it makes sense that as the people who grow up with tech age and need more healthcare, it will become more embedded into the culture a little bit. I, I, I definitely see that, um, at least from the regulation perspective, we are sort of promoting it more. You know, there's the, you know, the Cures Act that came out that sort of makes you know, right now, all the notes for you for a patient should be available. They should be able to own it. Um, we do see, um, I think we recently actually, I did a summer project with students that kind of sort of looked at a clinic and it seems like most people who are using the sort of patient portal, they definitely appreciated um, having the notes available to them. Um, and so I do believe that kind of going forward, this, this will just kind of be a section that will grow. Mm-hmm. Talking about the cloud and health and the EMR and stuff, I feel like we can't not mention security breaches. Um, I know UVM went through one a little while ago. Do you think that's going to be something that's just like a part of EMRs or what do you think we can do to prevent against that kind of stuff in the future? I think, you know, as a, as a tech geek, kind of even outside of medicine, you know, most security breaches are user issues. Um, you know, certainly you can, if you're like a very good hacker, you can find vulnerabilities in firmware and hardware design, but um, those are often patched very quickly. Um, most of the large hacks are going to be user error. And as long as users have the ability to use things, um, that will never go away. So I think that's just kind of the cost of business here. You know, it like I just think that you know, you could secure everything, but um, you can't secure the user. I mean, I think our hack here could have even been just someone clicking an email that was wrong. Um, so I, I do think obviously this will generate headlines, but um, I think as long as you, you know, humans have control um, there, if you're trying to hack someone, um, they're the easiest target usually. Yeah. And this is kind of a fun extra question, but what other outside of EMR and healthcare interests in tech do you have? Any other like companies or products that you're you're following? You know, right now I've kind of taken a step back the last couple of years. I think I'm very, very interested in AI and there's a lot of companies that are pushing out AI products. Um, I think there are mostly crap, <laughs> um, but uh, I'm surprised what we're willing to pay. But um, I do think... There's a lot of lot of potential there. I think right now it's really kind of securing data. You know, obviously garbage in, garbage out. But um, I do see huge, huge potential there. I, I I think AI is the future here, and I don't. I think a lot of people see it, but not everyone. But I don't think people see the awesome, awesome possibilities that it can sort of bring. Um, mm. they, I feel like most people only can get a glimpse of it. What are you most looking forward to when you say awesome, awesome poss- possibilities? I think all this can be automated. <laughs> and and, and, and I, I think it can be self-learning. I think, you know, what we're trying to do can be just sped up and done exceptionally well if the tools are there. And honestly, we're at a point outside of this where the tools are there. It's just we're, we're you know, we're just not implementing them fully. And, you know, that being said, the tools available will need to grow in this field as well. You know, I think we're just kind of playing catch up. And I do think some of that is just barrier of entry here. So 
um, even with the tools that are available outside of medicine now, huge, huge possibilities. And, you know, th- you know, with sort of quant- maybe this quantum computer computing, you know, age upcoming, um, the possibilities are just even greater. Are EMRs regulated by the FDA or like any governing body or not particularly? You know, I'm not sure on that question. I know in order to sort of operate, you probably have to meet certain regulations. I have never done dug that deep, so I don't want to sort of misspeak, um, but I'm sure there are certain regulation regulatory bodies that you have to sort of meet the regulations to, to operate. Um, but in terms of, does it all fall under an umbrella or organization that I'm not sure. Huh. I wonder if, if sometime in the future, one of like the big tech companies will kind of make a stand. I think again, it just, it comes down to barrier of entry, you know, yeah. um, it's, it's, it's a lot of, and I think these EMR companies are very smart. You know, you sign a contract for hundreds of millions of dollars. And if you, you kind of are married to it for like decades at that point, unless you want to lose hundreds of millions of dollars. I mean, you have to be exceptionally better at that point. Um, And uh, you know, again, I, I, I personally think there's a lot of room for a lot of improvement, but you know, it's hard to get someone to commit for that if you're not proven, especially. Um, And at this point, if all your records are built out on this, you have to get sort of a lot of, a lot of incentive to get someone to switch. All right. Well, I think that's all the questions I have. If there's anything else you want to mention about EMR in medicine or tech in medicine? Yeah, maybe I'll give a plug. So, you know, I think the field of informatics is growing and as our sort of reliance, um, as well as sort of the benefits of sort of um, sort of medical tech kind of keep going forward. I do think there will be a need for sort of physician and provider informaticist. Um, I know right now um, there is actually a formal fellowship in informatics, but um, they have actually not been able to get enough people by their original sort of deadline. So they've been actually grandfathering people into the program. So maybe just to let people be aware that, you know, you, you can be in any field in medicine, but um, there's still sort of a possibility to sort of be involved in this as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe that's not sort of a, not everyone, not every student or resident is aware of that, but uh, certainly if you see things in the EHR you'd love to change, or you just have an interest in that, um, just kind of a plug that um, there will be a lot more opportunities in the future. I feel like the field is only growing. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll work on that class. <laughs> <laughs> All well, right. thank you much. That's it for today on Green Mountain Medicine. I'm Anish Single. And I'm Sam Schutz. And thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed our discussion, please don't forget to follow us on Twitter at ACP underscore Vermont for more podcast updates.